Then from the cloud came a voice that said, This is my son, my chosen. Listen to him. Please pray with me. Dear God in heaven, we ask you now, as we do each week, to be here with us this morning. And we trust that you are here in this place. May my words be your words and all of our thoughts your thoughts. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. I've been thinking about romantic comedies again. Um, there's a whole genre of romantic comedies kind of fallen out of favor now, I think, which I like to call She Was Right There the Whole Time films. You know the ones I mean. There are a bunch, but for me, um, and this is a weird thing to admit, but for me, some kind of wonderful always jumps to mind, in which Eric Stoltz enlists Mary Stuart Masterson, his best friend, to help him woo Leah Thompson, the prettiest girl in school. This is back in the 80s when Hollywood was desperately trying to make Eric Stoltz a star. But by the end of the movie, of course, he realizes that he actually loves Mary Stuart Masterson, his best friend, and always has. She was right there the whole time. And Some Kind of Wonderful is actually also a perfect example of the ubiquitous problem with these movies. Because in it, Mary Stuart Masterson is so obviously so much better than Leah Thompson in every way. She's prettier, funnier, cooler. As I recall, she's a rock and roll drummer and an auto mechanic, for goodness sake. <laughs> Stoltz should have realized from the beginning that Masterson is the girl he should be with. All the guys in all these movies should. Now this genre also includes all of those terrible films where the nerdy girl just needs to let her hair down and take off her glasses and BAM! Actually, she's the prettiest girl in school, and she was right there the whole time. I suppose that there is some real-world resonance to stories like this. There is something about seeing something every day that makes you forget how special it is. I suspect that husbands and wives fall into this a lot. It's certainly the genesis of the phrase, absence makes the heart grow fonder. You wouldn't think, though, that such a thing could happen with Jesus. And yet, on the Mount of Transfiguration, Peter seems to make a some kind of wonderful mistake. He seems to forget just how wonderful Jesus is. So let's look just for a few minutes this morning at the story of the transfiguration of Jesus Christ. And I'm going to try to accomplish three things today. First, I want to clear up a common confusion. Second, I want to talk about who Jesus is. And third, I want to talk about what Jesus has done. So you can track our progress through the sermon this morning. One, two, three. Clear up a common confusion, who Jesus is, and what he came to accomplish. My preaching professor would finally be satisfied all these years later. A nice, tidy, three-point sermon. So Luke begins his telling of this story in chapter 9 of his gospel, and the first sentence that we have in our lectionary reading is, Jesus took with him Peter and John and James and went up to the mountain to pray. And you know, fair enough, the lectionary compilers 
want us to focus on the transfiguration story for this Sunday. But Luke chapter 9 and verse 28 actually reads like this. About eight days after these sayings, Jesus took James, John, and Peter up to the mountain to pray. Potentially trying to call our attention back to what came immediately before the transfiguration. Now, this is not a big deal. They're not trying to hide anything here. But I want to take just a second of personal privilege to say a quick word about these sayings to which Luke is referring. Because the truth is that until I actually spent some time studying the transfiguration, I didn't totally understand what Luke meant. They were pretty mysterious to me. I thought it might be helpful to clear that up. So a quick detour here. And of course, now my preaching professor is like, what a detour? What are you doing? But these sayings that Luke is referring to, eight days after these sayings, Jesus went up to the mountain to pray. What are the sayings? Well, if you look at the several preceding sections of chapter 9, you'll see a couple of things. You'll see Peter confessing Jesus as the Christ in verses 18 to 20. Then Jesus predicting his death and resurrection in verses 21 and 22. And then Jesus' announcement that true discipleship involves taking up one's cross and following him in verses 23 to 26. But then in verse 27, the verse immediately preceding Luke's comment that Jesus went up to the mountain after these sayings, Jesus says something which sounds confusing. Here's Luke 9, 27. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Now, I wondered about this for years. What does Jesus mean? Obviously, everyone there, everyone to whom Jesus is speaking, died before Jesus' return at the end of time. Or maybe Jesus is referring to his earthly resurrection, or potentially to some people who might be taken up to heaven directly without dying, like Elijah. Or maybe Jesus is just wrong? Well, no. And it turns out that the answer is very simple. Who among this crowd is not going to die before seeing the kingdom of God? Well, Peter, James, and John. That's who Jesus is talking about. These three disciples who are just about to go up the mountain with him, see God's kingdom revealed on the Mount of Transfiguration. So with that little prologue out of the way, let's get ourselves up on top of the mountain and to our second point of the sermon, who Jesus is. So Peter and James and John have gone up with Jesus to pray, and all of a sudden, as we read, things have become dazzling white. Moses and Elijah appear and talk with Jesus, and seeing this, and seeing that it might be about to come to an end, Luke says that Moses and Elijah are getting ready to leave. Peter interjects. Master, he says, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three dwellings, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Now Luke here is probably making an allusion to the Jewish Feast of Tabernacles. The word here for dwellings is the same word for tabernacles. The Feast of Tabernacles is an annual remembrance in which the Jews 
would erect and stay in temporary booths or tents or dwellings to remember their ancestors' time wandering in the wilderness after the exodus from Egypt. And stay tuned, we're going to be talking about the exodus more later. The exodus drama is definitely providing the thematic background for what Luke is doing in the telling of this story. So Peter here is, in effect, saying, let's celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles right here, right now. Let's set up some booths and have a celebration. But Luke says that Peter didn't know what he was saying. Now, I think there's a couple reasons that Luke takes time in the biblical text to sort of rebuke Peter a little bit here. Now, Peter is misguided, and Luke wants us to know it. And one reason that Peter is wrong here in his seeming desire to stay is that he's, in a sense, equating Moses and Elijah and Jesus. Three tents, one for each of them, let's stay up on this mountaintop forever. But Peter has, in a sense here, forgotten just who Jesus is. These three are not equals, And the voice that comes from the cloud makes sure we know it. This is my son, my chosen. Listen to him. Jesus is not one of three. Jesus is one of a kind. And when the cloud clears, Jesus is found alone. And one of the ways this one-of-a-kindness of Jesus is shown is actually in this idea of the Feast of Tabernacles. Now remember, when the Jews are wandering in the wilderness, the tabernacle is an impermanent, movable structure in which God dwelt while the wandering was happening. They needed to be able to pick God's house up and take it with him. God needed a place. So by suggesting that they celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles here on the mountaintop, by calling back to that time during which God needed a place to dwell, Peter is forgetting that God incarnate is right there with him. In Jesus Christ. Peter's Eric Stoltzing from some kind of wonderful, so fascinated by the one thing that he misses the better thing that's been right there the whole time. He's forgetting about the one-of-a-kindness of Jesus Christ. He's so wowed by all the shining whiteness and by Moses and Elijah that he forgets that Jesus is one of one, God incarnate on earth. He wants to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. But as Luke says, he doesn't know what he's talking about. This is my son, the voice from the cloud proclaims. You don't need a tabernacle anymore. You don't need a tent. You don't need a place for God to live. You have standing before you a tabernacle of flesh and blood in which the fullness of God's glory is pleased to dwell. You have Jesus Christ right there. So that's our point number two. This is who Jesus is. The incarnate God on earth. The human who is 
fully divine. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. One of one. You don't need a tabernacle. You have Jesus. And what is it that Jesus, the new flesh and blood tabernacle, is going to do? Well, I want to draw your attention now to a simple phrase buried in the middle of this story, which reveals our third point, what it is that Jesus will accomplish. It's verse 31, in which Luke notes that standing on the mountain, dazzling white, Moses, Elijah, and Jesus are talking together. Normally, I think I read right over this line. I don't even notice it, probably because I want to get to the voice coming from the cloud. But this week, it stopped me. Moses and Elijah and Jesus are having a conversation. And what are they talking about? And Luke, the gospel from which we read this morning, actually tells us. All three synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, tell the story of the transfiguration. But Luke is the only one that records the content of the conversation that these three kingdom residents are having. Luke says that Jesus, Moses, and Elijah were speaking of his, that is, Jesus' departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now, Departure is a fine word, but I can't hear it and think of anything more profound than an airport. Luke is trying to tell us something much bigger here. He is not thinking of an airport. Jesus isn't just leaving. The word Luke uses here, which we translate as departure, is actually a word that carries with it hugely important connotations for the people of God. Because the word here is exodus. That's what Jesus is going to accomplish. Jesus, Elijah, and Moses are talking about Jesus' upcoming exodus, which he is about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Just a few verses after the transfiguration, when he has come down from the mountain, Luke notes that Jesus sets his face toward Jerusalem. So intent is he on accomplishing this exodus mission. So this kingdom of God conversation between Moses personifying the law, Elijah personifying the prophets, and Jesus personifying the gospel, this conversation is about what Jesus is about to set his face to do. He is going to reenact the exodus, but on a cosmic scale. The first exodus was the rescue of the children of God from their bondage in Egypt, bringing them into the land that God had promised them. But that exodus is just a pale foreshadowing of what will happen now. Now, at Jerusalem, Jesus will rescue all the exiled children of Adam and Eve, the whole human race, thrown out of Eden for their disobedience. Jesus will rescue everyone who calls upon his name. He will rescue them from sin and death. 
and bring them home to God, reconciling them forever. On the cross, Jesus is cast out, exiled, just for a moment from God. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He says. He was cast out as we were cast out. He has traded his place for ours. And later, when Jesus' body is placed in the tomb, he is himself in exile. Once again, trading his place for ours. Standing in for those sinners who need him so desperately. And then, of course, comes finally the morning of the third day. When we see the results of this new and final exodus. This is what our Savior has come to do. Jesus was cast out of God's favor in order that you might bask in it. He has gone into exile so that you might be welcomed home. He has taken your sins onto himself so that you might be counted righteous before God. He rises from the dead and in so doing raises you to new life in him. The kingdom of heaven, Moses, Elijah, and Jesus, the law, the prophets, and the gospel, the kingdom of heaven has gathered on the mountaintop to discuss your salvation. And we find ourselves this morning at something of a middle point in our story, the story of how you get saved. Christmas is the beginning. We celebrate God become man in Christ. Now at the transfiguration in the middle, we are reminded that Christ is God sent to rescue sinners like you from their exile. He will perform a final exodus. We are about to embark on Lent, the long season of waiting for the completion, for the end, the good news of Easter morning and the empty tomb that on account of Christ's victory, you are saved. Amen.